the power of land in education, celebrating the buffalo, government shutdown, and some music. It's Friday, September 29th, 2023, and you're in the moment. I'm Kara Hetland. Coming up on the program today, Larry Rohr and David Husrud take up the topic of new metal and a revival in the genre that first emerged 35 years ago. We meet Connie Goddard about her interest as a writer and historian about William Beadle and his passion for public school lands. Jennifer Irving joins us from our studio in Pine Ridge to talk about a public event tomorrow celebrating the Buffalo. And Lee Strubinger shares his conversation from this morning with U.S. Congressman Dusty Johnson. I'm Kara Hetland, filling in for Lori Walsh. You're in the moment, and the news is first. And I'm Kara Hetland. This morning, U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson spoke with SDPB's Lee Strubinger about the looming government shutdown. Take a listen. The United States government is poised to shut down at 12.01 a.m. on Sunday, October 1st. All eyes are on House Republicans as legislators seek to iron out a deal. U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson is one of the loudest voices calling for getting the country's fiscal house in order. He joins me now by phone to dissect the situation and his priorities going forward. Representative Johnson, thanks for joining me on In the Moment. Hey, thanks for having me. Where do we sit right now for the potential of a government shutdown? I think a government shutdown is growing a little bit more likely. I'm certainly not giving up hope. I think the, the big boys and the big girls in the room need to keep working. Uh, government shutdowns are dumb. They don't do anything for anybody. They do not save us any money, and they deny American citizens access to services they need, and, and frankly, they deserve. What are some of the tensions and the flashpoints right now that you see uh, occurring when it comes to piecing together this budget? In, I mean, obviously, when you're talking about these appropriations bills, it's about spending money, and there are big, big differences between how the Senate and the House want to spend money. In general, the Senate would like to spend uh, a little more money, uh, and, and frankly, kind of a lot more money on uh, disaster relief and Ukraine. The House is more concerned about the national debt, uh, $33 trillion dollars. Uh, that's increased by just uh, by 50% in just the last uh, three and a half years. So really a very aggressive hockey stick increase. And so uh, there are House members who'd like to cut non-defense discretionary spending by 25 or 30%. That's a non-starter with the Senate. And we're having a hard time figuring out how do you get the votes needed? I mean, how does anything get the votes needed to pass both the House and the Senate? Yeah. What are your concerns, I guess, and priorities in this debate, what would you like to see happen? I, uh, number one, I'd like us to not shut down the government on Saturday night. Uh, later today, we're going to be voting on my plan that I developed with uh, five other conservatives in Congress. It would keep the government open. It would reduce spending pretty dramatically during the next 30 days so that we have an incentive to get our work done. And it would also secure the border uh, by putting into place policies that we know work. It uh, It is gaining a lot of steam on the Republican side of the aisle in the House. To be honest, I mean, it faces an uphill battle to get to 218 votes. That's what you need to pass a bill out of the House. There are only 220 Republicans here right now. Uh, we have a vacancy and we have uh, a, a, an absence because uh, a mother just gave birth. Anna Lena Paulina gave, gave birth. 
to a beautiful child, and it's really hard to get 218 votes out of 220 Republicans. And the border security measures are, uh, I think, a little too much for uh, to bring the Democrats on board. Yeah, I was going to say, because then it has to go over to the Senate. Yeah, the hope is that the Senate, uh, understanding that the border has started to become an issue, not started to become an issue. It is an issue that is really not unified Americans, but there's broad consensus. It's an 80-20 issue. You have Democratic governors of New York and uh, of Massachusetts and Democratic mayors in uh, Chicago and, and, you know, a number, I mean, dozens and dozens of Democratic elected officials that have really started to be public with the Biden administration about the fact that 233,000 uh, illegal crossings last month is just not something that our, our country can bear right now. And and I've talked with Lori before about, uh, you know, legal immigration is just a beautiful gift to this country, but it is too uh, easy to get here illegally and too hard to get here legally. We, we need to be grown up enough to address both halves of that equation. There's a faction of House Republicans who really wouldn't like to see Speaker McCarthy work with Democrats um, to pass a budget. Is that realistic? Well, the Senate is in Democratic control and the House is in Republican control. And so it's literally impossible. I mean, and I'm using literally in a literal sense. It's literally impossible to pass any bill without votes from both parties. So to the extent that we're going to fund this government, of course, eventually we're going to fund the government. That's part of the reason that I think shutdowns are, are so mind-numbingly uh, terrible is that, you know, they don't change the dynamic in any positive way. They don't save any money. They don't help anybody out. People imagine that it might provide them more leverage in a, in a negotiation, but that never really has been the case during the last five shutdowns over 40 years. And so we, we to the extent that we are going to have a deal to fund the government that uh, that end deal is going to require literally votes from both parties. What are you hearing from folks back in uh, South Dakota about the potential for a government shutdown in Western South Dakota? There's a lot of federal government workers uh, out here between the, you know, park service, forest service and the air force base. What are you hearing? They say, and they're right that shutdowns, are, are an embarrassment. I mean, can, can you just imagine uh, dedicating your career to the United States military, to the defense of your nation? Uh, you're, you're a Marine. You work hard uh, to try to feed your two kids and to serve your nation, and then your country is going to deny you a paycheck. That is just hard to stomach. It's hard to imagine that any of my colleagues could allege that that's okay to do because it's a negotiating tactic. Uh, and then you look at people who, who listen, they, they, they have questions. They, they want answers. They want to be able to pick up the phone and talk to the IRS. They want to be able to talk to the Forest Service about an issue in their backyard. They want to be able to talk to the Indian Health Service. They want to call uh, the, the Farm Service Agency. I mean, the, we are paying for those services. The American people are paying for those services. And uh, I, every once in a while I'll run into a South Dakotan who will say, shut it all down. Government doesn't do anything. Shut it all down. And I just don't think they have thought through the second and third step. I mean, so, sir, how do we get out of that shutdown? And how does that shutdown that you are so excited about help anyone? We do need to reduce spending. I mean, I've got a pretty aggressive plan to do it, but you can't get that done by burning everything to the ground. Is, is this tactic a real winning formula to showcase to the American people what Republican leadership would look like in 2024? 
I think the the track record for the Republican House the last nine months has been much stronger than the kind of the media narrative. And because we're in such a, a highly divided era, uh, you know, the, you're always going to have the other party now spend a tremendous amount of capital uh, attacking the other side's uh, failures. But I think the data here is uh, I think the data here is uh, important to focus on. Uh, there have been more bills signed into law by the president that have originated out of the Republican House than were signed into law by the president uh, in the last Congress under Nancy Pelosi and with Joe Biden as president. Uh, the Republican House has, has passed H.R. Uh, 1 and H.R. 2. Uh, those bills unlock American energy, uh, which we, we absolutely need to do. I mean, all forms of American energy. Uh, and then also secured the border. Uh, we brokered a, a bipartisan deal uh, with uh, the president. Uh, I don't think he liked the deal very much, but it, was a, it had a tremendous number of conservative wins. It cut $2 trillion of spending over the course of the next five years. It unlocked American energy by uh, reforming our uh, siting and permitting processes. And it, reform, it had the biggest, uh, biggest reform to, to welfare uh, in 30 years. And so I get it. I mean, sometimes people like to focus a little bit on the clown show, on the you know the anger, uh, the fight between Matt Gates and Speaker McCarthy. But I think if you actually look at the legislative work product, it's been a lot better than people sometimes understand. House Republicans have opened a formal uh, impeachment inquiry into President Biden. We're facing a looming government shutdown. Are we entering this kind of brave new world where when we have like divided chambers or congresses or different parties between the White House and Congress where this is becoming the norm? I do think we are in uh, a different era. I think we have been for, you know, five or ten years, uh, maybe longer than that. I mean, these I think these trends uh, build over time. We, I think we're angrier at one another. Uh, public opinion surveys indicate that we Americans are now more likely to view someone in the other party as an enemy rather than as a fellow American. Now, that has not been the case for most of our 247 years. So this is a new era. Now, I would not call it a, a brave new era, and I know you didn't, you, you, you didn't pick that phrase to try to indicate that this is a good period of time. But I would, just, I would, I would, search on, I would, I would seize on that word brave. Because there are times that my colleagues will go to the House floor and they will yell and they will scream and, and they will uh, talk about uh, working with the other side as though it is some sort of sin against our country. And I would say that is not brave. That is pandering. It is, it, it, and I understand so many uh, in, uh, of the, the primary electorate in both parties really are so angry that they want their members of Congress to channel that anger. That anger is not productive. That anger uh, does not feed, uh, does not uh, employ one soldier. It does not uh, reduce one dollar of spending. That anger does not make sure that our safety net uh, for America's poor is more efficient, more effective. Uh, that anger does not do anything. Anger cannot be the foundation for a marriage, for a nonprofit, for a business. It cannot be the foundation for an effective government. And so I would just ask people who are excited about this, you know, brave new world that finally we have fighters. The people in Congress who are the loudest and who are the angriest, they pass nothing. They contribute nothing to the legislation of this country, and it makes them more popular to be filled with outrage. They do indeed get more Twitter followers, but my oath of office is not to my own political comfort. 
My oath of office is to the Constitution of the United States, and our nation deserves a government that is functional. Anger is an impediment to that. That was SDPB's Lee Strubinger's conversation with U.S. Representative Dusty Johnson. Welcome to In the Moment. I'm Kara Hetland, sitting in today for Lori Walsh. And this weekend, people from across South Dakota can gather in Pine Ridge to honor and celebrate the buffalo. The Honoring Tatanka Oyate event is Saturday at Red Cloud Indian School, also known as Makpialuta. Uh, Jennifer Irving is the Vice President of Communications and Marketing and joins me on the phone uh, from Pine Ridge. Jennifer, welcome and thanks for being here. Oh, thank you for having me, Kara. Um, so let's talk a little bit about this event on Saturday and how it all came about. Yeah, so we've been working on a partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting for the last year or so, year or so just trying to get some Collaborate, uh, collaborative things off the ground with our schools. Um, and they heard about, last fall heard about our um, Tatanka, our buffalo harvest that we have um, the week of Thanksgiving. And so came out, saw, uh, shot some footage. Um, and then I think around February or so um, approached me about like, hey, can we do some screenings um, in the community? It'd be great for Red Cloud to host these. And so um I think I responded with, like, yeah, that'd be great, but we have to feed people. <laughs> um, and then it just kind of grew from there, right? It just kind of, um, I started thinking back to what a traditional Lakota buffalo hunt kind of entailed. You know, there was prayer, there was song, dance, there was a lot of celebration, there was a lot of intergenerational um, activity, um, you know, it, it was a time for us to come together as a community, um, and then after the hunt, there was a lot of, um, you know, games and gambling and celebration and just a lot of, of hope for the future, and um, so when I started thinking about what this event could be, like, I wanted to hearken back to those days, and like, how do we pull people in together, I really wanted to focus on um, highlighting the work that's happening around buffalo revitalization uh, within our tribal communities, and so really start thinking about our partners like Tonka Fund um, and how much they work with local tribal buffalo producers. So it kind of grew from, you know, let's have these screenings, we got to feed people, it just uh, grew from there. So it's a day-long festival, really, uh, is one way to look at it. But I do want to say that the screenings um, are really uh, a Ken Burns uh, documentary that's going to air on SDPB in October, uh, and that is about the American buffalo. But SDPB really is focusing on several half an hour uh, talking about um, Tatanka and um, the buffalo and what it means today, especially yep. for our Native American friends. And it's screening of those two um, programs yep. uh, that we're going to have on Saturday. Plus, you said games and food, 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 food. Always food. Always food. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So talk a little bit, though, also about the panel discussion about food sovereignty and Native-led mm -hmm. buffalo herds. Yeah, so we've invited um, Nick Hernandez, who's the president and CEO of Makoche Agriculture Development, to facilitate a panel of, buff of tribal buffalo producers. 
um, to talk about their efforts uh, locally within their tribal communities on revitalizing Buffalo. Um, so he will lead that panel. We've invited um, the executive director of Tonka Fund, Trudy Ekafi, to participate on that. And then some of the producers that we've invited include Virgil Two Eagle, um, Ed Ironcloud, Bam Brewer, and Jim Redwillow. Um, and these are individuals that um, are working every day on revitalizing Buffalo, incorporating it into local stores, into school systems, um, just working every day to revitalize buffalo herds and putting them into our communities. And so we really wanted to have a focus of hearing from them, so elevating their voices and some of their work so we could all have a greater appreciation of what they do every day. Uh, sometimes we take for granted, you know, in these modern times to be able to pick up a phone and call somebody and then you can get, you know, some buffalo meat, but there's so much more um, to that. And you know, we're thankful that we're able to do it that way, but um, we have to recognize there's a lot of work um, to revitalize uh, Buffalo in our communities. And so these are some of the folks that are on the forefront of that. Well, and let's talk just a little bit also about the role the Buffalo does play in contemporary Lakota culture and spirituality. Sure. Yeah. So I think much like, um, you know, I was reminded the other day by an elder that worked here at Luta, she reminded us that we have a very symbiotic relationship with the buffalo. Um, what happens to them happens to us. And so, you know, there was a time in our history, which we'll see in these screenings um, and, and these documentaries, where buffalo were almost wiped out. And so there's a lot of revitalization that's happening, happening on the, within the buffalo, um, but is also happening here in our communities. And so we see that revitalization of culture and language, um, of song and dance, right? We see it in our young people that are learning Lakota every day. It's very similar to, you know, as the buffalo herds grow within our Lakota communities, we too are seeing that same revitalization um, of culture and heritage. So um, for us, you know, the, what we had with the buffalo years and years ago is still very much alive and well today. We've seen a resurgence of the use of buffalo um, in school meals. Um, we see that here at Mahfialuta. I know other schools that are also um, incorporating traditional foods into their, their lunches and meals and into their school events. Um, you know, a decade ago, you might see like one or two buffalo harvests in community, but now almost every school, at least on our reservation, and I imagine on other reservations too, every school is having um, what we call buffalo harvest, so bringing a buffalo onto campus, um, harvesting all the parts. Um, we start, you know, we see schools utilizing that as a teaching method, so, a, you know, springboarding off of that harvest to teach about all the parts of the buffalo, but also you know, taking us back to those original teachings about the buffalo and how we are relative um, and really emphasizing that symbiotic relationship. So what happens to them happens to us. And so um, that's kind of how we've seen that arc, um, right, and that loop back around to that reconnection to, to Tonka, to the buffalo. Um, 
And yeah, so I, that's how I've seen it play out in the last decade or so, just this increase in this resurgence of um, our youngest relatives really understanding that. Um, and even us as adults really reconnecting back to Buffalo. And uh, I know uh, with our technology and our partnership uh, with your school that um, students' assistance and educating them on how to run a camera, for example, uh, has also been a big part of this partnership and this project. Yeah, so um, some of our students will be leading the um, working with SDPB um, engineers and technicians to help stream um, this event uh, in the future. We're hoping to put cameras in the hands of students so they can document some of these events like our um, annual buffalo harvest that happens um, and, and also like document that whole process of, you know, breaking down an animal, storing those, what happens to the different parts, what are the uses. So there's a lot of possibilities there. Um, but yeah, we'll, on Saturday you'll see um, cameras in the hands of our students here um, documenting that day. And again, honoring Tatanka Oyate is Saturday from 1 to 6, Mountain Time at Red Cloud Indian School in Pine Ridge. Film screenings begin at 1 o'clock, and the festival is from 2 to 5, and the community meal is at 5 o'clock. Jennifer, thank you so much for taking time and joining us today. I really appreciate it. You bet. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment. I'm Kara Hetland. And in the mid-1800s, William Beadle's father offered him a farm and a life of agricultural pursuits. But Beadle, however, chose a different path, and that path ends up impacting his life in some very surprising ways. And it shapes the Midwest, particularly South Dakota, and our education system. And Connie Goddard is a writer and historian of education, and she joins me now in the Kirby Family Studio. Uh, she is here for the Greater North Plains Conference and stopped by. So, Connie, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Well, I appreciate being here. It's, it's great fun. <coughs> <laughs> I have deep roots in the Dakotas, so it's marvelous. Welcome home. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> well, welcome home. So let's talk a little bit about first the conference that you're here mm -hmm. Uh, to participate in. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, it is um, a couple hundred of historians, um, mainly doing things in the upper Midwest, Iowa and the Dakotas and Minnesota, etc. And um, it happens annually here. Um, this year, the program chair is Molly Rosam, who's at in um, University of South Dakota and is the author of that marvelous Grasslands Grown book, which I think your listeners, mm -hmm. I hope, know about. Um, <clears throat> and uh, just a lot of terrific papers. So <clears throat> I would like to talk about William yes, Beadle, so let's though. Let's talk about who's William Beadle, which yes. is why <laughs> you came to the conference, yes, right? Yes. <clears throat> to talk more about William Beadle. And so. He, in 1869, President Grant appointed him the Surveyor of General of Dakota Territory. That's right. So he decided these lands, some of them need to be saved for schools. Well, actually, the history of the school lands goes back to the 1785 um, and 1787 land ordinances that... Um, 
superimposed the vast grid system on what became the country west of the um, Allegheny Mountains. So it had an impact on you know, the states in the Midwest. And uh, uh, Beadle had been born in 1839 in uh, Indiana, and uh, his family was farm family, and then he went to law school, um, uh, served in the Civil War as well. Um, and he taught, or he practiced for a while in Wisconsin too, but he realized that one of the things that this la these land ordinances did is it put this great system of townships and sections superimposed it on the country. And there were 36 square mile sections in every township. And the law said that section 16, all the income from that should go to support public schools, which was a tremendously visionary idea. And, uh, but it wasn't practiced as well as it might have been, and often these lands were sold to speculators or <clears throat> and and the money did not go to support schools. And Beadle had seen that in Indiana and in Wisconsin and in Michigan. And so when he came out to go to territory in 1869, this was one of his one of his causes. And um, <clears throat> in 1879, well he became the superintendent of public instruction for the territory. <clears throat> okay, so section, I'm fascinated <clears throat> by section 16. Yeah. Um, and did that follow through um, and continue on, and, and was it enforced? Well, in that's, the the, that's the problem. It wasn't enforced east of the Mississippi as well as it should have been. Um, I think Iowa and Minnesota did a better job with it, but... Uh, Beadle was absolutely determined that these lands um, not be that they not be sold until they were worth at least ten dollars an acre, which was a f decent amount of money at the time. And uh, he had that provision written into the South Dakota State Constitution, and it provided extraordinary funding, or it provided pretty solid funding for schools in the in the in the state in the state and it not only was North Dakota and South Dakota but in the um, Idaho Montana and Wyoming also had the same provision uh, in it but also Beadle was superintendent of public instruction at this time of incredible growth in the schools during the Great Dakota boom so it wasn't land set aside to build schools on. It no, was no, land. and that's that's a great question yeah. um, because I think there is a misunderstanding. No, um, when counties sold their or rented out their Section 16, the money went into a, a, a fund, a public instruction fund, and then it was redistributed by superintendent, by the Office of Public Instruction to the county superintendent. So it wasn't, you know, we're on section 16, we're going to build a school. It was... <clears throat> that's where the money went. That's yeah, where but, the money was dedicated. <clears throat> but for. that's where, and the, the, there were a couple of incredible things that were accomplished during this period. Um, uh, one is, this was, Beatles' years as superintendent of public instruction were uh, 1879 uh, to 1885, and that was the period of the Great Dakota boom in which 
tens and tens of thousands of people showed up, particularly in the in the um, <clears throat> James River Valley, and uh, in there's a county named after Beetle that's there. And for example, there were no schools in 1880, and by 1885, 1886, there were a hundred and some schools in that one county. So do you believe that not enough, I mean, we only have a couple of yeah, minutes. Yes. So, but do you believe that not enough people really know about William Beadle and what he's done? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I think that is true. And people don't know about the school lands um, particularly, and they are a great story in American education. I would like, if I can, mm -hmm. um, I'm not the only person who's <laughs> interested in William Beadle. And there's a man named Jason Blessinger who teaches at Dakota State. And he also is doing a lot of work on Beetle. And not only that, but he and another Sioux Falls figure named Hector Cario, who I understand is well known here, um, are doing a graphic biography of Beetle that the South Dakota Historical Association is publishing in a couple of years. So I'm sure you will hear, um, you will hear much more about Beetle. Um, <clears throat> and he was he really should rank among the famous, recognized founders of the American system of public education, but he's just not known. So that's a bit of a mission. So that's a, that's a mission, and we, <laughs> yes. will, we will leave it there. I really appreciate you taking time and coming in today and talking about this, and I look forward uh, for SDPB to be doing more. Uh, and educating people more about William Beadle. So thank you very much, Connie. It's a great South Dakota story, and thank you very much. You're listening to South Dakota Public Broadcasting. On today's episode of Fresh Tracks, Larry Rohr and Sturgis native David Hersrud. With his years in the music industry, they take up the topic this week of new metal, and a revival of the genre that first emerged 35 years ago. Take a listen. You know, occasionally we have new music. We have music that's been revived or celebrating an anniversary. You know, David, I think this is kind of a mix. And it all centers around a theme of what you call new metal. A few weeks ago, the New York Times ran a piece entitled, Are You Ready? The New Metal Renaissance is Upon Us. But the question that I had what is it? New metal is basically heavy metal with elements of genres like hip-hop, funk, industrial, alternative rock, and of course the ever-popular grunge, mm -hmm. which means you're likely to not only hear singing, but rapping, screaming, and growling. Let's kick it off. Here's Duality by Slipknot, a band that formed in the mid-90s in that heavy metal hotbed Des Moines, Iowa. You're kidding. Hotbed? Seriously. Okay. This is what I would call metal. It seems angry. It seems aggressive, but the guitar licks and the timing and the rhythm, it takes real talent to hit those stops. I wouldn't sit down all evening and listen to new metal, me personally. Musically, I really admire how they can play it. New metal's the kind of music you put on at midnight if you're having a party and you want everybody to go home. <laughs> 
And instead of turning the lights on and nuking them, you yeah, put on new metal. You know, <laughs> you know, put on Lincoln Park to ten. Okay. <laughs> As you know, new metal's roots could be traced back to the early '90s in Corn's first demo album, Niedermeyer's Mind, which was released in 1993. From there, a whole generation of new metal bands emerged. There was Stained, P.O.P., Deftones, Papa Roach, and of course, Linkin Park. Now, people question, is it popular? Well, Korn has sold over 40 million albums worldwide. Slipknot, over 30 million. And Linkin Park, well, a paltry 100 million. <laughs> yes, it's popular. Now, what helped propel new metal to those heights? Very, very dark lyrics. Mm -hmm. there, there was also a fashion component, particularly baggy jeans. The bigger the jeans, the better. Now, let's play one of Linkin Park's big hits, a song called Numb. See, now listening to Slipknot earlier and then listening to Numb by Linkin Park, I mean, there's a real shift in personality of the music. One of the things about new metal is it goes off in so many different directions. You picked out the bands you like and stuck with them. Now the renaissance that's taking place, what, what sort of renaissance, where's it coming from? By the mid-2000s, new metal was losing fans to host of metal music variations. However, metal fans are considered to be the most loyal audience you can have. Right now, electronic and art pop artists have started incorporating new metal into their music. Bands like Limp Bizkit, and they played the rally this year. They're out touring, and bands like Kitty are reforming. They've recorded their first new song they've done in 12 years. Sometimes a music genre that's like this just need a pause, just needed a break and a rediscovery? Absolutely, I think you're 100% okay. correct. Is there anything in particular that creates a new metal fan? Is there something about the bands or the music that you think is the drawing card? Well, I think because it is so different, people right now have just been looking for different types of music. They're sick and tired. And they want to go off in a different direction. And if you're going to go off in a different direction, why not go with something that's absolutely different? I'm going to give you a little twist. I want to play a little bit of a song from an iconic older artist who took a younger group's music and gave it his sound. I hurt myself today to see if I still feel I focus on the pain the only thing that's real and that of course is Johnny Cash with the Rick Rubin version of Hurt 
and that's an old Nine Inch Nails song as Cash got out and did his own version. I have to tell you, it's probably one of my favorite records of all time. I don't think anybody was expecting that. No, I wanted to throw that in because we've got a great finale for this. You have to appreciate the fact that these new metal bands love to do cover versions. Mm -hmm. uh, Rage Against the Machine, recording Bob Dylan's Maggie's Farm. Limp Bizkit doing The Who's Behind Blue Eyes. And then Disturbed's version, which I love, with Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Check out the renaissance of new metal. David Herzerud is our musical guide, and as always, great to talk to you. Hey, good listening. In the